Weekend Warrior every Saturday morning from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. On ESPN LA 710. Dedicated to you, the fan who works hard all weekend, slugs it out on the court, the field, the big box store, and the honey-do list all weekend long. And helping you cope as you come to the realization you're not 19 any longer. Here's board-certified orthopedic surgeon Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited, as I am each and every Saturday, to be with you. And thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for telling your family. You're all junior orthopedic surgeons now, and you sit around at dinner. Oi vey, my ankle hurts. Hey, listen, I got a clapper vision for you. You'll tell them at the dinner table. Your ankle is like a bicycle. The ligament is like the kickstand. Ah, my back hurts. Hey, your spine is like a stack of Oreo cookies. The cookies, the bone, the cream filling is the disc. And they'll look at you going, what are you talking about? And you'll say, I'm talking about clapper vision. That's right. I can tell you exactly what's the matter with you and what to do about it. The loyal following really warms my heart. And it's the reason after working so hard yesterday, I can't wait to get up in the morning on Saturday to share stories with you of my life as a surgeon, my life as an artist, and my life as a devoted Laker fan and Rams fan and sports fan in general. Because I love these worlds of art, sports, and surgery so much, I love finding the connections. And some Saturdays I bet you wonder, how the hell is he going to connect fly fishing with the cascade song, The Rhythm of the Rain, and arteries and veins, and fish and chips. Well, buckle your seatbelt, because that's what we're going to do today. When I knew my guest at 815 was going to be the great orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Eric Zegan, who does what I do. He's a hip surgeon, a knee surgeon, and he's really, really good at it. And I'm so happy he's going to be joining us at 815. And I called him, Jeff Busey. From Biomet, he's the rep that takes care of me for my implants that I use. And same thing for Dr. Zegan. I said, Jeff, see if Dr. Zegan would like to come on the Weekend Warriors show so we can hear about what his philosophy of surgery and life is like. And he jumped at it. So I called him. I said, all right, Eric, I surf. You got to do something to deal with the stress of being a surgeon. What do you do? What's your hobby? And he said, fly fishing. And it just was, took my breath away because of all the stories and shows I've done over these 12 years, over 500 shows and counting. I've never talked about fly fishing. I don't know the first thing about fly fishing. So I looked into it. How do you fly fish? And there was a YouTube site which said, Here's some things that I wish someone taught me about fly fishing before I took it on. And this very first soundbite talks about the rhythm of the river. Before you get excited and start using that rod and reel that you just spent a fortune on and those flies on the end to try to mimic a mosquito so the fish will bite it, before you do any of that, I wish someone had told me, just walk to the edge of the river and take it all in. Feel the rhythm of the river. 
Here's the soundbite that I heard, and this is what led to today's topic. And we're going to start off with my first tip. This is a very important one. I've got my rod here, but it is not strung up and there's no fly on there. And that's because I really think that's the best way to approach the river. I don't like the idea of having your rod already strung up with a fly in mind before you get to the water. First off, it really kind of pushes you to start fishing right away. And you're not going to be paying attention to the rhythm of the water, the flows, the kind of water that you're fishing and what bugs are on there. And I think it's really a good idea to stop relax, take a breath, take in the water, look for rising fish, look for fish in certain holes, and then plan your attack accordingly. It'll reinforce good skills. It'll make you a better angler. Did you hear that? Take it all in. The rhythm of the river. Wow! And then it occurred to me, moving water, taking on a personality. There's a rhythm to it. It's different than looking at a rock which ain't moving. Once it starts moving, it's alive. And when it's alive, it can talk to you. It can give you a feeling just like another person. It can even teach you how to breathe. Because my world of moving water and the rhythm that I learn when I surf is about the ocean. And my favorite Zen philosopher, surfer, friend, been a guest on this show is Jerry Lopez, who taught us, if you can buy it with money, it's cheap. But listen to the rhythm of the ocean from the man himself, Jerry Lopez. But I wanted to uh, say something about waves. And waves, they're hard to ride. In the process of learning this demanding and often uncompromising activity, we can discover something extremely profound. Yes, we can, Jerry. Teach us. For many of us, every time we paddle out or come to our mats, this may be the only time we breathe the right way. You know, we were born knowing how to breathe properly, but along the way, Life came along, we forgot. Jerry Lopez feels that even how we breathe is a lesson we can learn from that personality known as the ocean, that moving body of water to a surfer. You know, that rapid, irregular, shallow mouth breathing takes the place of rhythmic, slow, deep breathing through our nose. And when we breathe, correctly and concentrate on our breathing, we become aware of an increasing sense of mindfulness. Mm. And from this mindfulness, we begin to understand the value of being in the present. Being in the present. Don't fish right away. Feel the rhythm of the river. Learn how to breathe from the rhythm of the ocean. And so I thought all week, I love sports, I love art, I love surgery. In my lifetime, where, where do you hear about the rhythm of moving water? Well, it's this song. That's right, 1964. Listen to the rhythm of the falling rain. Telling me. 
telling me. The rhythm of the falling rain telling me. It's speaking to me about what a fool I've been to give up this girlfriend. That's right. Rain is moving water, just like the ocean, just like the river, taking on a personality. And so I looked into the Cascades and realized they never had another song of any significance even close to this one-hit wonder. Who wrote this song? How did he write this song? How did he come about putting into words today's topic? That there's a personality in moving water. Well, his name is John Gummo. And he had two reasons to get inspired by moving water. One, he's on a ship in the Navy, on the ocean, and on top of that, it starts to rain. That's how this double whammy of moving water as a personality came to a guy who didn't know how to play an instrument, never wrote a song, didn't grow up as a singer, but it all of a sudden hit him like a ton of bricks in the middle of the ocean. Listen to John Gomo explain what exactly happened to him. I went to San Diego and I went aboard a ship called the USS Jason. While I was aboard the ship... What kind of a ship was it? It was a repair ship. It's an auxiliary repair, AR. It was uh, USS Jason AR-8 is what it was. And uh, they have their own, uh, their own group on, uh, on the internet. But uh, I checked aboard the ship and uh, I immediately found out that there was a shipboard band called the Silver Strands. And they, when we were out at sea, they oftentimes would go to uh, the rear part of the, uh, the poop deck <laughs> and, uh, and do concerts back there. So John Gomo is a guy just like you and me. Joins the Navy. He's on a battleship. He's in the middle of the ocean. He loves music. I love music. You hear it every Saturday. But I'm not going to say that I can write a song, although Clapper is a rapper. And I was always there. I was always a big fan of music, and I always used to sing a lot when I was in high school. Roughly what year are we talking? We're talking 1959, 1960, and uh, we... Used to rotate. So Eisenhower is still president. This is wow. back in the Eisenhower administration. Uh, yeah, I guess he was. He didn't leave office until Kennedy took took office in January of '61. So right. this is back at the end of the Eisenhower era. Right. I used to get together with the drummer in this band, and he and I would sit in the drummer's office with our friend Lenny Green, and uh, Lenny would play guitar for us, and we would sing Everly Brothers songs. Wow! But he's not a child star. He doesn't even know how to play an instrument. It took me a while to get up the courage to go up on stage and sing, but they, they dragged me kicking and screaming. So you weren't a child star then? No, you, no. You, you weren't, many of these performers grew up on stage. Mm-hmm. You, you were a young man who loved to sing, but never thought of yourself as being on stage. Until, not ever, not ever. Until you yeah. found out how good yeah. you sounded and how good the harmony was. I was 24 years old before I went in the recording studio, and a lot of these dudes that had hits back then were already, you know, they were like... A, they were 18, sure. 17, 18 years sure. old, having hit records. I was, you know, 24 when I went in the studio. So I was a late bloomer. So I love this question. So what instrument did you use to uh, write this song? Uh, I don't play an instrument. Oh, my God. But you love the music. Oh, and yeah. what instrument were you personally playing? At the time, I didn't know how to play an instrument. <laughs> and I, I have to say, 
I have been blessed with an intuitive uh, sense of chord structure and chords and harmony. And, and so they, after I sang on stage with them for a while, they said to me, why don't you learn to play something and become, like a, become part of the band? I use the keyboard to write with. It's my, my tool of choice for, for composing. However, I'm not really good enough keyboard, to, perform on, to stage. perform on stage. Mm. You're on board the Jason, the AR-8. Yes. You're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's raining. Mm -hmm. and, and the ship is tossing. Right. And the waves are coming over the side of the ship. And, and you're thinking to yourself, boy, I can't wait to get home. Or no, you're thinking of something about the rhythm. Yeah. You're feeling the rhythm, the pulse. That's wow. where it started. I was uh, standing amid watch up on the, on the, uh, the deck, of the top deck of the ship. And uh, I had this idea in my mind. Well, first of all, my friend Lenny Green, who is uh, a, a very good composer, he would play me some of his stuff. And I used to say, I used to think to myself, I think I can do that. I think I can do that. Why not me? Good for you, John Gummo. And we are all the beneficiary because you wrote one of the greatest songs ever. And I, it, it just never occurred to me how I would even start. But uh, I started with the title first and the concept. And I wrote the lyrics first. And this whole thing all unfolded over a period of months. And uh, I finally um, was able to uh, sit down at a, a piano keyboard and start uh, pecking out melody and all that. And, uh, and we eventually put this song down as a demo on tape. When you're creating the song, though, you're out in the middle of, of the Pacific Ocean. Oh, so yeah. Well, what that, did you do to record what you're thinking? How did you, how did you... I just had it written, I, you know, I just had the lyrics and the idea and the concept written down on paper because I had no, I hadn't really sat down at mm. the keyboard. And I had a melody in my head. The melody was there and I, there was no way I could get it out of my head. So because, did you do this when you got to Japan or did you wait till you came all the way back to the States? Uh, it seems to me I did most of it after I got back to the States. Unbelievable. That's the birth of one of the greatest songs to come out of the 60s, using the rain as another instrument in the song, but making that moving water have a personality. Tell me. Listening to me. Ah, oh, awesome. When moving water occurs, whether it's the ocean, the rain, or fly fishing on a river. It has a personality. And as a surgeon, you better be aware of that moving water, better known as blood, because that's what makes what you're doing surgery on something that's alive. Coming up next, we'll get into why fly fishing would be a way to relax for someone intense like a surgeon, like me and the great Dr. Eric Ziegen. Coming up next on the Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Check this out. Weekend Warrior is on the air. From the epicenter of sports in the Southland. ESPN LA 710. With Dr. Robert Clapper, board certified orthopedic surgeon at Cedar sinai Health Associates. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited to talk to this next guest, the great Dr. Eric Ziegen. Eric, thanks so much for making time to be with us. Hey, how are you? It's great to be here. 
<laughs> what a crazy idea, Eric, about comparing the rhythm of the rain with fly fishing, surgery. Can you imagine this all coming together on today's show? It's all your fault because when I asked you what your hobby was, you said fly fishing. <laughs> yeah, well, I need something to do. Uh, now, Eric, before we get started, I want everybody to learn a little bit about, and I want to thank Jeff Busey for making this all happen because while I'm at Cedars doing my thing, you're over at UCLA with the same rep and it's a beautiful thing. So I know everything about you and you probably know everything about what I'm doing in the operating room. I love it. Um, yeah, Jeff's a great guy. He is. So, well, shout out to Jeff. There. That's exactly right. So tell us who you are. Where'd you grow up? what your dad do for a living? High school? Why medical school? Where'd you go to medical school? Orthopedic surgery, joint replacement. Tell us about your journey of where you got to be where you're at now. Well, uh, I'm a, a native uh, Southern Californian. I grew up here in Los Angeles, out in the San Fernando Valley. And um, like you said, my father's a physician. So I, I grew up uh, being exposed to medicine pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad was you know, a great role model. So I remember as a kid, uh, this is back in the days when patients stayed in the hospital for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd go have a soccer game on a Saturday, and then I'd go with him to make rounds at the hospital wow. afterwards. And so it was, uh, you know, from a very early age, uh, exposed to it, and um, you know, <clears throat> just really uh, intrigued by the ability of, you know, being able to help somebody. And, and yeah, he's an ophthalmologist, so he did eye surgery and mm. cataracts, and being able to quickly transform somebody's life with a procedure was just really uh, inspiring to me. So that sort of laid the foundation for the interest. And then um, uh, went to college at uh, UCLA and uh, pretty much stayed there throughout. I, I went to undergrad at UCLA, medical school at UCLA. Wow. I did my orthopedic surgery residency at UCLA. So wow. uh, a lot of time uh, being a Bruin. So uh, it, it, it sort of came naturally with my dad having you know, gone through UCLA as tell, well. Tell me about the moment, Eric, that you, that Cupid shot you in the heart with an arrow where you said, joint replacement. I want to do a knee replacement, a hip replacement. Do you remember the case? Do you remember who you were with? When did that happen? Well, I, I, as you may know, I, I actually did two fellowships. I did a fellowship in orthopedic oncology as well as joint replacement surgery. So it was wow. kind of a combination of both. Um, you know, one of my mentors uh, at UCLA was the late uh, Dr. Jeff Eckhart, who I'm sure you know, yeah, yeah. Um, who uh, really was an incredible surgeon pioneer. Um, and I, I think I learned more from him just on how to be a doctor and how to take care of patients and um, how to approach surgery. Um, there was just a lot that he passed on to me and all my uh, contemporaries from that from that era. Mm. And um, so I, I think, you know, from working with him, but also with some of the other uh, uh, faculty who were doing joint replacements at that time, I just, the, the two worlds sort of intersected with these big reconstructive procedures with, you know, uh, big implants and, mm -hmm. and just the ability to take somebody who's either debilitated by arthritis or a tumor and, and um, put, a, put a new implant in and get them back 
walking and being active and returning to their life, their active lifestyle was, was just so um, profound to me. And, and just, I, I knew right away that's what I wanted to do. Can I tell you a Jeffrey Eckhart story? So in 1982, yeah. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Columbia, and I decided to come to do a sub-internship a month at UCLA. Uh, and I'm on the joint service and there, and I was there 24 seven trying to, you know, impress everybody in it, which was a great time in 1982 in the summer. And there I am on a Saturday making rounds with the residents and the fellows and Dr. Jeffrey Eckhart shows up on a Saturday and the fellow was wearing jeans Okay. Oh boy! Exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm like, what do I know? I'm coming from New York. This is UCLA. How great it is! There's palm trees. I never saw a palm tree before. It was unbelievable. And all of a sudden, this guy, this fellow who was teaching us, and had been doing for a couple of weeks. Well, on this particular day, Eckhart shows up to make rounds on his own patient, and he looks at the guy and goes, "You're the fellow. You're dressed like that. You're not going to see my patients dressed like that." He sent them home. Oh, my God. That guy was intense. And I wasn't even doing tumor surgery. I was just doing joint replacements at the time. But, yeah, he made a big impression on me as a fourth-year medical student. That's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, on a whole whole generation of orthopedic surgeons. I mean, he he really... Uh, professional the legend yeah no he he made it seem like you ain't gonna see patients of mine wearing jeans you know you you're a professional go home and go you know as Kobe said to Pal Gasol put your big boy pants on this is a big boy uh, rounds we're making here you're not gonna wear anything that disrespects what we do as a profession that's the the takeaway message that I got from uh, that interaction so Eric I, and we're going to definitely talk technical stuff because I just cannot wait to get into it with you. Last Saturday, my guest was Dr. John Reinish, and people really appreciated talking about this plastic surgeon who pioneered making ears for kids who were born without an outer ear. And I never appreciate how much people really don't know what it is that you and I really do as surgeons, and they really love it. But I want to get into that. But first, I really was fascinated when you told me you appreciated fly fishing of what it does to kind of the yin and yang of the intensity this is your hobby so i want to play a couple of sound bites and just like dr ranawa taught me the eyes don't hear what the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know the ears don't hear what the mind doesn't know so i want to hear what you hear when you hear these two sound bites let's do the first one And we're going to start off with my first tip. This is a very important one. I've got my rod here, but it is not strung up and there's no fly on there. And that's because I really think that's the best way to approach the river. I don't like the idea of having your rod already strung up with a fly in mind before you get to the water. First off, it really kind of pushes you to start fishing right away. And you're not going to be paying attention to the rhythm of the water, the flows, the kind of water that you're fishing, and what bugs are on there. And I think it's really a good idea to stop relax, take a breath, take in the water, look for rising fish, look for fish in certain holes, and then plan your attack accordingly. It'll reinforce good skills. It'll make you a better angler. What do you think about that? What do you hear, Dr. Eric Zegan, when you hear a guy saying, I know you're going fishing today and I'm here to teach you, but actually don't start fishing yet. Take in the rhythm. Probably a lot like what you tell that young orthopedic resident at UCLA, hey, 
Don't put the scalpel in your hand so fast. Don't use the saw so fast. Take in the rhythm of this operation. What do you hear when you hear this guy teach fly fishing? Well, I think it, it speaks to exactly why I was attracted to fly fishing to begin with. It's uh, it's called fishing, not catching. I mean, the reason I like it is you go out there, and first of all, you're away from everything. You, there's no cell phones, no pagers, no email. Um, you know, you're just out in nature, uh, in a river, and your mind can quiet down, mm-hmm. and the the everyday stress of being a surgeon just sort of fades away. And I can just sit there and be in the river, feel the water, you know, running under my feet, mm-hmm. um, hearing the sounds all around me. And um, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing to just be there in, in a part of nature. And, and um, you know, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of rhythm to uh, fly fishing with the rod going back and forth. And I think that just really balances things out. And like you said, you know, you want to, or the soundbite said, you you need to read the river. And I think that that's very true in that sport. And as you become a more seasoned uh, fly fisherman, you learn how to read little pockets of of water where the fish may be, um, how to present the fly in the right way, which fly to use, um, uh, how to optimize your casting so that uh, the drift is, is just right. So there's a lot of technical things, but I think the essence of it, you know, with, without the fly and, and the, the, the line in there is, is why I was attracted to it to begin with, was just to be out in nature away from all the stress of everyday life as a surgeon. Do you see your talent as a surgeon, evaluating, particularly tumor surgery, you know, how much bone to take off? Is there still cancer? You know, you want to make sure all of it is removed. Or even when you do a knee replacement, you know, how to balance the ligaments and taking it all in. Do you, you know, I believe it's for a reason that you chose fly fishing because it sounds very surgical to me in terms of the patient, the pathology, the reconstruction, all these steps and awareness that you have to have to figure out how to catch that fish is how to do that operation. Do you, do you feel the similarities? Absolutely. There, there's, as you know, with, with surgery, it's, it's both an art and a science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it in, on any given day and any procedure, it may be more art than science, uh, maybe more science than art, depending on the case and, and the patient. Um, so I, I think you have to balance those things out, mm. but certainly there's a, there's a strong, uh, uh, comparison between the two, the two endeavors of surgery and fly fishing. All so right. here's another soundbite. I want to hear your thoughts about this one as well, because this, I did not, thanks to you, I did not appreciate the difference, you know, when you bait a hook and you just throw it into the, with your fishing rod, like I usually do. It's under the water. I have no idea what's going on. But fly fishing is I'm actually seeing the bait, seeing the fly hit the surface. This whole idea of presentation, this is a different sport than just going fishing. So I'm curious what you think about this soundbite. What you want to do is shoot line, and that means to have some excess line below the reel as slack. So if I'm casting 
30 feet, I could have 25 feet of fly line out of the rod tip, and then I could have this extra line below. And when I cast, I simply let the cast go, and the momentum of the fly line takes up that slack. I get my distance, but more importantly, I get a much better presentation. If you've got 30 foot cast and I've got 30 feet of fly line and I cast that whole thing with no slack, it's automatically gonna reach the end of the, of the cast. There's no more forward momentum to go and there's no slack to give. And so it's gonna all pop back towards you and bring that fly back. You're gonna get a bad puddle and a bad presentation. A bad presentation. What does that mean to you hearing that? Well, the whole, the whole essence of fly fishing is being able to put the fly right where you think the fish is and make it seem as natural as possible hmm. uh, for the fly so that it thinks it's a, it's a I mean, for the fish, so the fish thinks it's a real fly. And I don't know if you've been fishing much, but I remember as a kid, the very first time I, I hooked a fish, that, that feeling will never leave you. It's, right. it's such an incredible right. feeling of catching your first fish. Well, when you go fly fishing for the first time and you present that fly and you see that fish jump up out of the water and take the fly and you hook it, uh, it's, it's such an incredible <laughs> feeling. It, it's, it's really amazing. And that's why, I, you know, I mean, no pun intended, that's how I got hooked on the sport. <laughs> All right, I want to get into the technical aspects of what you do. Can you hang on for another segment? Of course. All right, I can't wait to get into it. Because, Eric, what I'm so fascinated by is you're a different surgeon now because you've been doing this for a while. I've been doing this for 33 years. You're doing it more than 20 years. The sixth sense, the stuff that isn't in the book, that's what I want to get into with you coming up next. All right, we're talking sure. to the great Dr. Eric Zegan, UCLA's finest, talking to a guy from Cedar sinai I think somehow we're both going to get arrested for this one, uh, Eric Zegan. But I don't care. It's really great to showcase someone as talented as you. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Check this out. Weekend Warrior is on the air. From the epicenter of sports in the Southland. ESPN LA 710. With Dr. Robert Clapper, board-certified orthopedic surgeon at Cedars-Sinai Health Associates. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That's the Doors. Riders on the storm, not in the storm. That is a significant word, on versus in a storm. Because they're riding on something with a personality. Rain, river, ocean, moving water becomes an entity that's alive. Never realized that before. Thanks to the great Dr. Eric Zegan. Now I'm thinking about every single word whenever rain is involved. Are they on it or are they in it? So good on you, Eric Zegan. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I think that's a, a difference between East Coast and West Coast. <laughs> my, my parents are from from New York, and, and they always say they're waiting online instead of in line. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's the, the next level of that, which is I, I surf, so I spend a lot of time in Hawaii. And there's a great photograph, you'll appreciate this, Eric, of the, de the Department of Motor Vehicles line in Honolulu, okay? So everybody wears flip-flops. 
And, you know, they tend to eat a lot of poi and there's issues with obesity there. So there's this photograph of the DMV where everyone is sitting down in the chairs in the DMV and their flip-flops are still online in the right order. So when they're... (laughs) When their turn comes, they just get into the right flip-flops, but they're not standing the whole time like you and I would be. Just that's awesome. So I don't know whether that's inline, online, or in your seat would be the Hawaiian version of that. <laughs> so as a sculptor, Dr. Zegan, people can't believe that they can see the sculptures that I make, subtractive, which is very similar to surgery, Big blocks of marble. I go to Michelangelo's quarry every summer. And crazy enough, I try to copy the sculptures that he made with not power tools, with hand tools to try to understand the magic of what this man was like. And it's awesome to be able to look at the block and literally with my mind's eye, remove the excess tone and see the figure that's trapped underneath. As a surgeon for all these years... You know, thousands and thousands of surgeries, thousands of patients you've not only talked to, but more importantly, put your hands on and actually, crazy enough, start to see through the skin, right? You feel that patella, their kneecap, you feel the range of motion, you feel the crepitus, the crunching. At this point, you start to actually, you almost don't want to admit it because people will say that you're crazy, but you start to be able to see through the skin at the anatomy underneath. Tell us about what 20 years of being a surgeon has meant to you in terms of a sixth sense and really how difficult that might be to explain to a young resident, but tell them to stay tuned. It just takes time. Well, I think it's just like anything else in life. It's, it's you know, uh, doing something over and over and over again you you start to see patterns, you um, just become better at it. Um, with with surgery, it's the same thing. Uh, you can tell, like the sixth sense you're referring to, uh, when I'm doing a knee replacement, for instance, you have a sense of, is this a tight knee? Is this a loose knee? Do I need to snug it up more, leave a little laxity? Um, do I make my tibial cut in a touch of varus? Um, do I um, make sure that the patella is uh, not too thick? You know, all these things come into play as you're, as you're doing the operation. And it does become second nature because after you do it so many times, um, you, you, you just kind of know what's going to work and what's not. One of the things I also have learned through 20 years of, of surgery is trying to or not really trying, but it just happens by, by nature is, is seeing problems before they become a problem. So mm. you're doing the case, and, and uh, now that I'm working with residents and fellows, um, I can tell before they do something like, okay, don't do that. That's going to create a problem and, and stop it before it happens. So you, you, you kind of know um, what to expect, um, very mindful of the, your surroundings in the OR, um, can just kind of keep the flow of the surgery going uh, in a way that I, I would say when I first started out, I, you, you, I didn't have that sense. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just from years and years of doing it over and over again, you become more confident, um, just able to, to read the hip or the knee like we were talking about with with 
fly fishing with reading the, the, the water. It's the mm-hmm. same kind of thing. Yep, I believe that. What changes have most impressed you that have happened in your world of orthopedic surgery over the years? Well, I think number one is just the, the sheer volume of technology that has come into place. Um, as you know, with, with hip and knee replacements, uh, we're now using robotic technology, uh, computer navigation. Uh, we just have so much more technology at our fingertips when we're in the OR mm-hmm. to enhance the precision and the accuracy of the procedure. When I, when I do a knee replacement now with the robot, um, you know, I can tell within millimeters uh, how well I've balanced the medial and lateral sides of the knee. I can tell my flexion extension gaps uh, within a millimeter. I can uh, dial in uh, a varus or valgus cut on the tibia within a degree. So it's really incredible how much precision there is with, with these new technologies. You ever use the um, ultrasonic tools? Uh, you mean for removal of, of cement? Yeah, you ever use the UltraDrive, the stuff that I patented, all those tools I invented? Uh, uh, almost every revision. Great. <laughs> yeah. right. You know what? You it. can tell. Is your dad still alive? Yeah. yeah. You can tell your dad. Right now. You can tell your dad that his hero as an eye surgeon was Charlie Kelman. Charlie Kelman okay. invented the phaco emulsifier, which is the way you use an ultrasonic tool to take a cataract out. And the man who invented yeah. that was named Charlie Kelman. Man, I would love to know if your dad ever met Charlie Kelman. But apparently, you'll have to ask him, but Charlie Kelman, the ophthalmologist, went to the dentist and said, hey, that tool you're using to clean my teeth, how come it doesn't crack the tooth? Charlie Kelman went and created ultrasonic chisels and tools uh, that changed the way people did cataract surgery. Well, I did not know this, but I went to the dentist and asked the same question. How come this doesn't crack my tooth and just the hard plaque? And the dentist said, how the hell should I know? shut up, I'm just trying to clean your teeth. And uh, <laughs> I ended up bringing the ultra drive just the same way the fake emulsifier came to ophthalmology. I brought that. So it's it's nice. It's amazing, actually, to actually see this, this device that I woke my wife up at 2 in the morning and I said, oh, my God, that stuff, that cleaning tooth uh, tool I can use in orthopedic surgery. And lo and behold, the great Dr. Eric Zegan is now using it Whenever he does a revision, which really oh, yeah. my I just heart. used it a couple of days ago on a case. Thank you very great, much. Great War- tool. Warms my heart to hear that. So, Eric, take us through what a typical week or day is like for you. Well, uh, my week is probably very similar to yours. It's a, it's a combination of some days in clinics, seeing patients, and uh, other days in the OR. I operate about three days a week. Uh, two of those days are, are with two rooms, so bouncing back and forth mm-hmm. um, between rooms. So the, the clinic days are, are quite busy. Uh, typically see anywhere from 40 to 50 patients. Mm-hmm. That's both new patients coming in to be evaluated for hip and knee arthritis that are prospective candidates for, for replacement surgery, mm-hmm. as well as post-op patients, follow-up patients. So it, it's a pretty busy schedule going nonstop from 8 o'clock till about five thirty, six o'clock. Um, and, and as you know, the patients have lots of questions, concerns. Uh, you spend a lot of time answering their questions as best as you can. 
and uh, it's it's and you know you have to keep moving because you have other patients waiting, and it's this constant balance of trying to answer each patient's questions, but also being mindful and respectful of the next patient's time, so you're not running behind. So it's a, right. it's, it's a it's a it's a balancing act, and right. some days are better than others. Um, and then the days in the OR, or that's that's kind of my my uh, my those are my favorite days. You know, being in the OR and doing cases and mm-hmm. teaching residents and fellows. Uh, there's there's a flow to it with the two two rooms of making sure we're we're running on time and mm-hmm. uh, you know, but at the same time making sure that we're uh, doing the, the case. Uh, you know, as perfectly as possible. You know, John Wooden, uh, you know, being that I'm at UCLA, I get to say John Wooden quotes. But one of my favorite John Wooden quotes is, uh, be quick, but don't hurry, right. uh, which which I love. Because right. in surgery, you know, you want to be you want to be quick, you want to be efficient. Uh, the longer you have that wound open and the more bleeding there is, there's a higher chance of infection, uh, more chance for needing a blood transfusion. So, you want to be efficient. Um, so those those two room days, are, you know, again another balancing act of uh, making sure we're we're getting through the case as efficiently, but but as accurately and <clears throat> precisely as possible uh, to keep things going. Well, I'll leave so that's you. That's what with my the, week is like. I'll leave you with the words of wisdom. My dad was not an eye doctor. My dad was a carpenter, a rare Jewish carpenter. The last one was named <laughs> Jesus, by the way. But he left me with the advice that I bring to the operating room, which is similar to what you're saying. And his was measure twice, cut once. And that's yep, that's absolutely. really what it's all about. Eric, what a pleasure to be able to highlight you and showcase you. We're lucky in Los Angeles to have a surgeon like you doing what you do. And thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. We really appreciate it. Hey, it's my pleasure. And I uh, love your show. And Thanks for having me as a guest. Really, and uh, thank, truly an honor. Thanks for ta- for teaching us all about fly fishing. We wouldn't have appreciated it otherwise. And we're going to play a Bruce Springsteen song coming out because we know how much you love him. And we're going to play a specific song from Bruce Springsteen that is relative to fly fishing. You'll get it in a minute. Thanks so much, Eric. Really appreciate it. God bless you. Thanks. All right, Warriors, coming up next, I'll take your calls. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. Check this out. Weekend Warrior is on the air. From the epicenter of sports in the Southland. ESPN LA 7710. With Dr. Robert Clapper, board-certified orthopedic surgeon at Cedars-Sinai Health Associates. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. We're listening to Bruce Springsteen down by the river. Now, why would we be listening to this song? Because we learned today that fly fishing involves feeling, seeing, touching the rhythm of the river. And where I'm from, there's an R to begin that word, but there ain't no R on the end of that word. It's R-I-V-A-H. Just like Kobe said, Clapper, Dr. Clapper. It's a river. 
And someone I'm about to talk to, because I've spoken to him before, is calling in. And he talks worse than I do. Mitch, welcome to the show. You're on with Dr. Clapper. How are you? How you doing, doctor? <laughs> How you doing? Clapper, Forget about it. Get out of here. <laughs> All right. What do you mean? Uh, you, 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 you talk just as bad as me. You're a doctor. I love you. I, I love your, your shows. Thank you. Uh, and nothing, nothing personal. Uh, I'm glad, you, you know, we have some good doctors. But the bottom line is you really don't want to see them. It's nice to have them, but you really want to, you don't want to be dealing with it. Something's, something's amiss. You want an umbrella? And as soon as you take that umbrella, it ain't going to rain. So you want an umbrella. You want a doctor in your life that you don't have to go to. I get it. God bless you. And the more I'm going to talk to you, the more my language will deteriorate. Love it, Mitch. What's up? How you doing after your hip surgery? What's up? Hey, I got one song for you. How about Southside Johnny? Love on the wrong side of town. I think similar mean. But I'm not big on, on, on. You know what I just realized about Southside Johnny? One of his greatest songs was We're Having a Party, right? Isn't that a great Southside Johnny song? But but the guy who actually sang it first was Sam Cooke, and he actually did a better version. I'm I'm embarrassed to tell a guy from Jersey that Sam Cooke actually did a better version of We're Having a Party than Southside Johnny. Hey, I'm from Staten Island. Well, I was born in Brooklyn like you. I think Sam Cooke's from, from New York. I'm not sure. But wow. I'm not big on people doing covers. Yeah. I like the originality. You know, you, you write the song, you write the music. They're the ones that should be the richest. Like with CCR, what was the big deal? Fighting? It was John Fogel's great voice. I think he's got one of the best voices in, in, in music. And he wrote a lot of the songs. Mitch, you got to um, be careful, though. Saying, you got to be careful in Manhattan. How Every corner's got an original raised pizza. How could everybody be an original raised pizza? It's where I come from. If you're, You only can be one original raised pizza. So people take advantage of that whole idea. You can cover the song. You can cover the pizza, <laughs> right? Same thing. You got it. You're right. Um, my hip's pretty good. I mm-hmm. did the ultrasound. It wasn't I. It was just my mind running, racing with me with right. the prostate. Right. Instead of worrying, go get it against you. They made me do an ultrasound. I couldn't drink a water. Couldn't have a cup of coffee for twelve hours. Right. I was I was climbing the walls. <laughs> but um, I know my other. I'm a grandfather now, by the way. Eight Ma- eight weeks. Mazel tov. Kyle. Mazel tov. He's gonna be six three. He's gonna be great. Uh, Thanks a lot. And um, my other hip. What's the best thing? To keep the other hip from going slow. Don't, don't let anybody bad. give you any cortisone shots, stem cells, PRP, synvis. No needles into your hip. You got the book, Heal Your Hips, I wrote with Lindy Yui. Get in the water. That's W-A-T-A-H. Get in the water. Walk in the pool. That's how you're going to stay away from having hip surgery on your other hip, okay? And retire from sex as soon as possible. That's exactly <laughs> right. Thanks for calling and checking in, Mitch. Thanks we appreciate it. God bless you. All right, Warriors, I got a few minutes left. First of all, where is that place that you can ride that bike all across Manhattan Beach to Hermosa Beach to Redondo Beach all the way around the bend smelling those eucalyptus trees and then going up the hill and up the hill where there used to be a place called Marineland at the top of Palos Verdes. Well, the grotto the big rocks, the water that would smack and still smacks into those rocks where the marine land used to be is now the Terranea Hotel. And on the grounds of the Terranea Hotel 
in my opinion, is the best fish and chips I've ever had. The place you need to go to is called Nelson's. You go there, you tell me, and tell them Dr. Clapper sent you. That is my rhythm of the water place to eat. Next week, I cannot wait. My guest is Sally Sanger, one of the greatest women surfers in California. She's going to be my guest. What's so special about Sally Sanger is she has a gift for teaching older people, 70 and older, all about fitness. And I want to get into the, the reborn idea. 70 is the new 40. Fitness is the key. Nutrition is the key. And she's an expert in it. And I've already started to think about it. Jack LaLanne. That guy lived to be 96 years old. He didn't start really living life till he was 70. And the secrets behind that guy in fitness and in the world of art, at age 70, Michelangelo took on the biggest job in art ever undertaken by a 70-year-old. And that was to make the dome over St. Peter's. Nobody ever built, since then even, something like that. Because they didn't have gasoline engines to schlep the materials to the top of this massive dome. They used donkeys. But what did Michelangelo do? Because a donkey would be spooked by going up that high. Panic. You couldn't bring supplies. I'm going to tell you what Michelangelo did that allowed donkeys to still lift the supplies and bring them to the top of the dome. All of these innovations in art as an architect, not as a sculptor, but as an architect of St. Peter's starting the project when he was 70 years old. Can't wait to get into that. The whole idea of life beginning at 70 with an expert, the great Sally Sanger. She'll be my guest. Until next week, I'm going to leave you with Volare, which in Italian, how appropriate for Michelangelo, is I'm singing and I'm flying. We do it each and every week. Thanks to Dr. Eric Zegan for checking in with us. Until next week, I'll see you on the radio. Mentre il mondo pian piano spariva lontano.